This episode today talks about suicide, which I know can be distressing for some. So if you need some resources or support, you can go to beyondblue.org or this 24-hour free counseling in Australia and call Lifeline 131114. Welcome to Deeper Questions. Submerge in wonder, surface with hope. My name's Aaron Johnstone, and today we're responding to the question, how can we help save a life? Suicide is one of those taboo topics that we push as far out of mind to the furthest, most out-of-reach edges of our mental faculties. And for good reason, it's utterly tragic when someone takes their own life, when their circumstances and emotional well-being reach such a point that they no longer feel they can go on, where it feels so bleak, so hopeless, and a permanent escape is the only option. And what a flow-on effect this has for surviving family members, friends, local communities. The shared guilt, the confusion, the regrets, the what-ifs, the questions left unanswered. You can never think of life the same again after something so painful becomes the new reality. And so today we wanted to bring it front of mind with a guest who is doing some incredible work in this space to help get us talking. So many people won't talk about their mental health. Three million Australians experience depression and anxiety in any year, yet two-thirds won't go and get treatment for that. Two-thirds of three million Aussies is an enormous amount of people that won't go and seek help for their mental health. Today, we have Mitch McPherson, who is the founder of Speak Up, Stay Chatty, a not-for-profit organisation working in the mental health space promoting positive well-being and prevention of suicide by normalising conversations about mental health and encouraging people to seek help when they need it. Mitch McPherson established the organisation in 2013 after his younger brother Ty died by suicide and he's been a, a champion in the mental health space ever since. You can see the Stay Chatty logos everywhere in Tassie and probably interstate as well. Those iconic blue shorts plastered on buses, businesses and cars. Mitch was the 2017 Tasmanian Young Australian of the Year and also hosts the popular Get Frank podcast, where he invites on a range of guests to share candid conversations that might just help someone out of a hole. He's also written Behind the Smile, where he powerfully shares his story and the Stay Chatty organisation. His team organised community events, fundraisers and presentations to community groups, workplaces, sporting clubs and schools to promote the Speak Up, Stay Chatty message. The team works hard throughout Tasmania and Australia to raise awareness about mental health and suicide and share that it's okay to not be okay, where to find help and how we can help each other out in tough times. Stoked to have you on Deeper Questions, mate. Thanks for joining us, Mitch. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for that nice introduction. I uh, reminisced last night at an event and uh, shared that, um, yeah, the stickers everywhere these days, but someone sent me one on the it was probably about six years ago now, sent me a photo of one on the back of a tuk-tuk in Thailand. So oh, awesome. um, they have spread. Um, don't ask me who put it there or why on earth they put it there, but um, yeah, it's pretty cool. American. Yeah, pretty cool to hear that story that there's one getting around over there as well. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, and if you, if our listeners have photo evidence of this, the iconic shorts in different countries, uh, we'd love to see it. I'm Please sure Mitch do, would. yeah. <laughs> love that. So uh, Mitch and I had a bit of a connection before this podcast, and uh, that was when I provided the most socially acceptable drug on the market. Um, highly addictive, not very profitable, and yet essential for daily business around the world. So I was working in a cafe. And uh, Mitch and the team, they used to come by for their regular brew, and uh, it was always good for a laugh and even better for a deep and meaningful. So now, uh, Mitch, can I ask, or, or rather, can I ask permission to quiz myself here what your go-to coffee order is? It's amazing how coffee um, has become such a key part of our life and our team. It was certainly a local and and that's part of life, I think, that those things where you, you grab a coffee or your, your regular pitter or whatever it might be that you you build a, a connection with whoever it might be serving you and we were certainly able to to do that with you and the crew and we certainly continue to do that. But um, look, I'm a, I'm a cappuccino guy, which I try to look after myself I don't look after myself as much as I can. I've got a bad back at the moment, which isn't helping, but I've certainly got a mate in Melbourne who owns uh, quite a successful uh, few cafes and he tells me, get off the milk, um, <laughs> but I can't. Um, so I'm I'm an almond cappuccino at times. That's but, what uh, I was going to guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah almond cappuccino. Latte, Change yeah. the milk up a bit, but um, I do love a cappuccino. I'd probably have too many a day, <laughs> but um, I'm fighting that urge every day. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Fight the drug. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, Mitch, today we're going to be hitting on something incredibly important, but also something incredibly personal for you. 
um, the topic of suicide. It, it's not brought up much, but it's the leading cause of death for young people in Australia. And Mitch, this is something that you've now given a chunk of your life to as well. Could you share the events that led to you starting Stay Chatty? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, probably the longest winded question that uh, I, I answer. So um, you've allowed me to have that yeah, authority to do that. But look, uh, again, you know, suicide is something that um, certainly um, I hear that a lot when introduced about it's something we don't talk about and it, it is, but it isn't. I think that there's still so many people that are, you know, uncomfortable, afraid, or don't know how to approach the topic. And there's certainly you know, many people across our country that are in a position that still aren't. But um, I always like to really focus on that, you know, if you'd said that 10 years ago when I first started, I'd be all on board that comment that, you know, absolutely we don't. But I always still try and focus on the positives when it comes to mental health. You know, we, we spoke off air and we're going to talk about statistics later. I don't focus on them because they can sort of be a negative connotation around mental health and, and depression and suicide. So I, I totally agree. We, we don't talk about it as much as we could, but I, I like to always highlight that we do compared to where we've been. And that's something that's really, really important and really, really important to me. But look, I certainly in my old life didn't. Um, yeah, I grew up as a uh, a young bloke that played footy and, and drank beers and, and had a job that I didn't really enjoy. I, I didn't have a lot of um, zest for life. You know, I, I had zest when I was probably playing footy or, or having a beer with my mates, but in downtime, I was an, a pretty lost individual that, you know, certainly didn't, I wouldn't say that I was suffering with with anxiety or depression or anything like that, but I suppose within myself, there was a uh, a huge range of, of unhappiness and satisfaction. And that's just because I hadn't found what I was meant to do in my life. And, and that sort of brought me a lot of trouble and a lot of, yeah, unhappiness, if you like. But um, yeah, I was, I was 25 years of age working as a, a, a glazier by trade. I was qualified um, playing footy and, and, and living life to the fullest or what I thought, but you know, a, a lot changed on the, the 14th of January, 2013, when, when my little brother took his own life, as you um, alluded to earlier. And you know, suicide is something that, you know, I'd heard about briefly, you know, in, in my life as a 25-year-old being well-connected and, and through footy clubs and, and in my tradie life, I'd certainly heard the word suicide and, and in a distant way, knew people that had been affected by it. But it's funny that I'd never, ever heard it and, and had seen someone impacted by suicide and ever thought to myself, I should sit down and learn more about that because that is, you know, that would tear you. Imagine that happening to you. Like imagine losing someone in your world to suicide, what that would do to you. How how could you live with that? How could you ever embrace life the same again? And it's strange that I never, ever, ever thought that. And until that night when um I, I was home from work and phone rang and it was, I missed it. It was my mum. And then all of a sudden there's commotion upstairs and my dad comes flying down the stairs telling me that my, my little brother has, has taken his own life. And, um, yeah, it, uh, turned my world upside down for a, a very long time. It, um, you know, he was my, my best friend. He was 18. I was 25 and he was a fun, happy go lucky guy that, um, lived life to the fullest. And he was about to start a building apprenticeship the next day and learning to drive and, had a lot of friends and and so many amazing things that we just took for granted that were, you know, his life was set. He was raring to go and he was about to enter a really exciting phase of his life. So for that to be, you know, taken away from us and to be entered into that dark world of suicide was incredibly traumatic and devastating. I suppose the the, the realization for me, the, the three to four month phase for me over that period was grief, sadness, devastation, and feeling emotions that I'd never, ever felt before, lost, you know, you can only imagine. And I know that there'll be listeners today going, yep, I've been there. I feel that. And they know what it's like. And I suppose for me, the, the biggest thing that I felt in that moment was guilt was grief. It was sadness, but it was guilt. That was a really big thing. And that's a thing that when you're, when you're entering into the world of suicide, it's hard not to experience that, especially when it's someone so close to you. But I think I felt worse in terms of the, the guilt because, you know, I was his best friend and his, and his brother, and, and we spent so much time together and, you know, all I could think about was, you know, well, what could I have done or how could I have changed that? Or are there things I could have done differently? But look, at the end of the day, i I knew nothing about mental health and suicide. All I knew in that moment was to grieve and, and was to be sad. And I'm sure you'll probably ask me, but there were things that, that happened in life that made me realize I could have done more and, and certainly planted the seed for, for the organization now and the purpose that I have every day. But yeah, it was a, a, a horrific time that um, it's been 10 years now. I certainly talk about it a lot in my life and, and through what I do now in my job. But um, I'll certainly never, ever get over what happened. I've certainly just found ways in my life to live with it and, and to be as strong as I can every day. 
Yeah, for sure. And I'm guessing, like you're saying that you you weren't in that world before and then it was just kind of imposed on you by reality. Were there any signs now you look back uh, where you could have maybe seen something was a bit amiss? Definitely. And and that's, I suppose, the thing for me that changed it all. I, I at school was, um, you know, um, and in life, you know, I mentioned I was 25, I was working and uh, there was a lot of time I had to myself where I was pretty unhappy with where I was at. But when I lost Ty, I suppose I, I'd never studied in my life. I'd never, you know, I'd become a qualified glazier. But if you ask me at school, I'd, I wasn't in the books much. I was playing sport. I was a larrikin and I'd never really studied or took a test seriously. But it was funny that I'd, I'd started to, you know, I lost Tig and all I could think about was why did this happen? You know, there must be reasons as to why he took his own life. And I be, I sort of became a little bit obsessed with wanting to know why. I, I you know, I, there were lots of people messaging me saying, hey, mate, you know, I've seen you really open about the loss of your brother. I've been through it. If you want to have a conversation, I'm here for you. I'd be straight on to those people and I'd go and meet with them. I was reading Beyond Blue websites and scanning those and looking for it. And and it became evident over that next few months that there were signs in Ty that he was struggling and that he wasn't okay and, and that there were moments that we missed as a, a family and as his best friend and as his big brother that we absolutely should have picked up on that he was down and out and needed a conversation. But at the end of the day, we were ignorant. You know, we hadn't had anyone stand in front of us and say, hey, suicide's real. Here are the numbers. This could affect you. And so we never took it seriously or thought that it would ever happen to us. To be honest, that was hard to learn. And I remember, you know, one night sort of sitting in the lounge room with my my dad and my stepmom and and crying, sharing, you know, how I'd driven past Ty walking home when he'd normally have asked me for a lift home. And I just left him, you know, walking along the main road of Tramere on his own when, you know, that was five days before he died. And, you know, realizing that, that, you know, any other day he'd love to get in the car with me or he would have texted me for a lift. And, you know, there were plenty of those. And I, But, you know, they were moments that I, I, I struggled with and, and were really hard to swallow. But at the end of the day, I know now if people ask me what drove me to set up Stay Chatty and to make a difference with it, it was those moments that I wish I'd done differently. And that's what I'm really vocal on and and what I really share and scream to the clouds that, you know, to look out for those signs because I didn't. And um, I'm always thinking what if, and I, I always probably will for the rest of my life. Yeah, for sure. And um, in terms of a family context, have you found ways to be able to process it together uh, over these over this decade now? Um, yeah, look, they were probably conversations early days. And um, I remember my dad was sort of on the, the board of Stage Chatty when we started. Dad was a, a butcher and worked at the jail. You know, he, like me, had no idea about DGR status or setting up a not-for-profit in that space. And, you know, there was a, a crunch conversation with dad, you know, a year or two in that dad, sorry, you can't be on the board anymore because, you know, we've legally got to have people with certain qualifications and, and all those types of things. And, and that sort of led to conversations about that sort of ceasing, if you like. I know that my family and I, are, um, you know, we're, I'm close with some people and there's others that I'm not so close. And, you know, we get together at Christmas and we'll acknowledge birthdays and things like that. But there's not a lot of lounge room sitting around with my family and celebrating, talking about those moments. And there probably weren't in those days either. I was really driven by the organisation, believing that we can make a difference with it. But I wouldn't say that I ever... We had those initial discussions that Ty was struggling and they were the driver behind the organization, but I wouldn't say that they ever sort of became conversations that we sat around and, and dwelled on again. I certainly talk about them a lot because they're a big part of who I am and, and what I strive for in, in the change around mental health. But um, yeah, no, we after those initial sort of conversations, I'm sure my family have had individual conversations about it, but it's not something that happens regularly. Yeah, and understandable. You can't have these conversations all the time. Yeah. Emotional toll. They do. And how, how did you find ways to kind of deal with that emotional burden uh, over the years? Yeah, it's um, a good question. And that always comes in waves as well. You know, grief is unpredictable. Grief rears its head at times you would never, ever imagine. I know that as I'm, I'm getting older, I've got kids now, I'm getting softer and I find myself getting more emotional these days than what I probably ever have when thinking about it. So, but I've, I've we've got an amazing team. We're not afraid to say no. You know, if I'm I very rarely pulled out of events or speaking engagements, but I know that if I have, it's for the right reason. And But yeah, I just look after myself. I've got good self-care, loving wife, great friends. I have a, a best mate that we, he's on the Gold Coast and every morning without fail, we'll chat. Um, he'll ring me or I'll ring him and just a debrief on what did you do yesterday? 
what's on tonight, what might be challenging. So I've, I've got those things in place. But, um, yeah, look, there's no doubt that anniversaries or my brother's birthday or things that I oh, hear sad stories. You know, I live in, live and breathe suicide and mental health in my day and my life. And, you know, things pop up all the time that will catch me off guard and I'll pop into my office and have a little cry or get emotional on the way home. I'm, I'm, I'm never, ever shy away from that that happens to me, but um, I've certainly got good people and good um, practices in place to, to support myself to, to get through it. Really appreciate just how candid and raw you've been just here in the start of this interview. It's okay. Yeah, certainly there'll be things that we uh, jump into throughout the rest of the conversation as well. Um, maybe you could tell us a bit more about Stay Chatty itself. So uh, you, you've touched on a little bit on how it started and, and some of the key people. What did you kind of learn through that process? And then wh- what do you guys do as an organisation? Yeah, absolutely. Well? So it started off with um, the the car bumper sticker, which, I mean, the original idea behind Stay Chatty was, it, it sort of stems from a moment I had with my mum. I remember um, visiting mum and it was probably about four months after Ty died. And so we were right in the thick of this grief storm, you know, like four months is a very short short period after a, a suicide. And I remember mum being incredibly emotional. And and I remember my my drive home after leaving mum's place that day, heading to dad's was, it was a bit of a blur, but I rem- you've seen it in movies. And I don't say that to make it sound theatrical, but I just remember getting my car, driving home and being incredibly aggressive towards my steering wheel. I was crying. I was an absolute mess. Just thinking, you know, like, why, is, why did this happen to us? You know, missing my brother, but also thinking, there's got to be a way to get out of this this awful time of our lives. We were just surrounded by so much grief. I found myself being the sort of beacon, you know, so many people in our family were coming to me for not just support, but just like, how are you going and, and talking about it. And I just remember getting home that night thinking, I've got to do something. We can't live like this anymore. And I, coupled with also learning about mental health, feeling like there was something I could probably do to raise awareness to others. So it was a sort of two-pronged arrow, you know, help my family get out of this grief and focus on something positive, but let's make a difference for others and by sharing our story and putting it out there so that, you know, another family and another Mitch McPherson doesn't live with what I live with right now because I was missing him so much and would have given anything to have him back. So yeah, that was the night I sat on my bed with a, a pad and pen and sketched the idea of car stickers, what can it be? And yeah, came up with a little pair of shorts, which is, you know, a tribute. It's got his name, Speak Up, Stay Chatty. So his name was Ty. But the little pair of footy shorts is, um, you know, he loved wearing footy shorts. He wore them wherever he could. Everyone knew that, whether you edit this out or not, he loved wearing footy shorts without any undies on. So there were a lot of uh, inappropriate moments. Um, infamously, one night when he was about 17, he was sitting opposite my stepmom. We were having some family time watching TV and she had to tell him to put his feet down off the coffee table. Uh, you can only imagine what my poor stepmom was exposed to. Uh, he was a larrick and he was an idiot. And look, I, I just remember walking upstairs saying, Dad, what do you reckon of this? And um the rest is a blur. I just, I put it out on social media, a sticker company printed a couple of thousand. My stepmom and I were up late nights for the next few months, wristbands, set up a Facebook page and um, it just took off. And I think the reality was that Tasmania were probably longing for an opportunity to talk more openly about mental health. And and I certainly don't sit here and say that I'm a, a Jeff Kennett Beyond Blue founder and change the way that Australians, you know, here in Tasmania viewed mental health. But certainly take a little bit of solace in that role. I, I feel that I was I was willing to be vulnerable. I was willing to share my story and just put it out there. And yeah, it, it overwhelmingly had a lot of people share that they loved what it was. They loved that they were now more comfortable to share my story around their dinner table. And that was provoking a lot of conversations that wouldn't have been had. And yeah, look, long story short, I, I started to do some really bad public speaking set it up as a charity with some wonderful people that believed in me. There were, you know, I'm only going to gloss over the the amazing things that happened, but there were a lot of dark days of, of people not believing in me and not having me in their workplace. And who's this 25 year old tradie unsafely talking about suicide? No way. You know, I was, the door was shut on me a lot, but um, I, I really believed that me sharing my story and I could articulate it in a way to connect with people. And I was doing that and anyone that was hearing me was giving me amazing feedback that it was changing their life and the way they viewed mental health. So I really just believed in myself that it could be something special. And I had a circle of people around me believe as well that we could make a a really big difference with it. So look, Relationships Australia, Tasmania employed me. We got some funding after a couple of years from the state government. And and now, yes, Stay Chatty, I've answered this in a really long way, but um, we, we have seven teammates at the moment. 
We have programs in schools, workplaces and sporting clubs, educating people around mental health, um, breaking down the stigma, promoting that it's okay to not be okay in a various amount of ways. I mean, I travel, I've been to America for this. I've traveled all around the country to share at conferences, events, workplaces, seminars. It's pretty amazing to think that um, it is what it is today. And, and you know, Stay Chatty is a really well-recognized and respected organization in the mental health space in Tasmania. And I use the word proud a lot because that's the best way to describe it. I'm just incredibly proud of, you know, not only what I did and the work that I've done, but the people that believed in me and and now the team that drives Stay Chatty. You know, I sometimes feel a bit guilty. I'm, I get to come on and do podcasts and still share my story while back at the office, our amazing team are, are driving conversations, booking in presentations in schools, workplaces all around the state and continuing to be really passionate about that. And I'm so proud I started it, but just really proud that where we're going and the difference that um, we've been able to have and the impact that we've been able to make on so many families across Tasmania. Yeah, for sure. You should be proud, like a wonderful way to, to honor Ty's life and for it to, to bless others through a really hard time. Yeah, thank you. Uh, and yeah, it obviously hits quite a felt need, not just um, here in Tasmania, but in wider Australia and around the world. I read a, an article recently that suicide has dramatically risen in many of the countries around the world. So I just wanted to ask you for some of those stats that you're yeah. <laughs> a bit shy on, but um, <laughs> like, what sort of a feel? How bad is suicide in Australia from what you can tell? Yeah, it's a, a really good question. And um, I, again, Mitch, focusing back on the positives, I alluded to it a moment ago about my trip to the US. So I was recruited by the US embassy and I, I thought at first, I deleted the first couple of emails thinking it was spam. It was like a privacy email. Hi, Mitch, you've been selected to come on a trip to the US for mental health. Get back to us. Like, yeah, no, thanks. <laughs> um, I even joke about when I finally said yes, that I'll meet you and I went off to meet three individuals that had flown down from the Melbourne embassy to, to catch up with me. And I often joke that I hugged my wife and kids a little tighter that day going <laughs> off to work thinking, well, this is it. I don't know what I've done, but yeah, I'm never going to be right. seen again. Um, and I, I headed off there and had three weeks in the US with 12 other individuals from around the world. And we shared in, you know, our own stories about our own countries and, and what we do, but also, you know, visited 28 organizations around America that were focusing on mental health, whether that be service providers, lived experience centers, rehab clinics, GPs. And look, the one thing I learned about that was that, you know, it's a mess over there in the US, for example. And it was interesting that every single person that stood up to talk to us from a, an organization in the US, they opened up, nearly all of them opened up and said, I don't know why they brought you over here. Like it is a mess over here, but we're going to explain it to you anyway. Um, stigma is a huge issue over there in the US. You know, it's very divided and that, you know, stigma is something that prevents so many people from getting support. It's a huge barrier. And I suppose what I'm getting to is that I'm I went over there um, thinking that, you know, we've got enormous issues here in Australia and Tasmania. We know the issues with waiting to see a service, that there's wait times, we're under-resourced and all those types of things. But I came back with an enormous amount of confidence in, in what we're doing. And I feel that even the 11 other representatives around the world, you know, were very impressed with us as a country as to how we go about things and what we do. And that's because we've taken that big step to talk about mental health. You know, we're, as we said off the top, you know, we've got so far to go and there's still so many people that are are not willing to talk about it but we we are there's so many organizations out there talking about it sporting codes having rounds dedicated to mental health you know the Danny Frawley thing that happened a couple of years ago in AFL it happens in cricket you know we we are really setting the tone for a lot of other countries around the world and for me that's something to really hang our hat on and to be really positive for i really do like to to highlight that and and to really focus on that but yeah as i said look statistics I find them to be negative. I find if we get caught up because they're not great to highlight, you can then get caught in going, we have so many issues, there's so many, it's so grim. And uh, But it was really good for me to reflect. So I, I have got a couple here that I'll, I'll share with you because there'll be people listening that don't necessarily know what they are. Yeah, please do. There were lots of them, but a couple that I wanted to highlight, um, and this is getting to the stigma part of it as well, that over two in five Australians aged 16 to 85, which is roughly 8.6 million people, had experienced a mental disorder sometime in their life. So this is 2021 statistics. Another one, anxiety was the most common group of 12-month mental disorders. So that's 3.3 million people. And almost two in five people aged 16 to 24 years had a 12-month mental disorder. And this is what I say when I go into an audience that, you know, I'm here to represent an advocate who's lost someone to suicide. It's it's a big issue. People go, yeah, is it a big issue? Is it not? But I mean, that to me highlights so many people won't talk about their mental health. You know, 3 million Australians live with depression or experience 
depression and anxiety in any year, yet two-thirds won't go and get treatment for that. Two-thirds of three million Aussies in it is an enormous amount of people that won't go and seek help for their mental health issues, whether that be depression or anxiety or there's plenty of others. And if you ask yourself why are people not going to seek treatment, there's a lot of reasons, you know, lack of resources, funds, access. But I reckon a big one is stigma. We come back to that stigma that people just don't feel comfortable to go and talk about how they're feeling. And 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 that's why days like Are You Okay Day and Stay Chatty Shorts Day, all these things that we hear these days in the calendar are so important because they're a, an opportunity for one individual or a whole organization to just kickstart their journey towards being more open about mental health and to understanding that, you know what, it, it's okay. I'm not strange. I'm not weird. I'm not different. And I think the more we can normalize some of those stats that I just reeled off that how common it is, then, you know, we're going to be far greater in a position to start to break down barriers and therefore allow more people to to get support for what they might need or whatever they might be experiencing. Yeah, for sure. And once the numbers kind of reflected by people going to get help, um, then more funding can follow. And that, oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah no doubt. Mm. So you're talking about it a little bit there, but um, what sort of impact do you feel that COVID has had on suicide rates in particular? Yeah, again, um, stats really from when we look at the ABS have been around 2021. So you look at COVID was 2020, there's a little bit impacted on there. But I hear, you know, fleeting comments about how grim COVID was. And I know that when we were in the thick of it, you know, in my game and in my space, I was hearing all the time, you know, I had friends in Melbourne that are saying, oh mate, there's, this is happening every day. There's people all over the place taking their life with the isolation and and whatnot. And still really yet to see a lot of those numbers. But what I learned is, well, two parts to that. I think we will learn the greater outcome of COVID in years to come. I think people are still processing. People are still impacted by the the isolation that they experience. Their businesses have been impacted and they've had to pivot on how they run their business. You know, people are working from home. They're doing things differently. It'll be good to look back on that in a few years. Um, COVID was grim. It isolated a lot of people. It changed and altered the way people live their life. It took lives with the disease. But what it did do was normalize that we go through tough times. And I think that's, again, you know, again, Mitch being Mr. Positive over here, but there were a lot of people in the world and in Australia in particular struggling that didn't, you know, that stigma wall was up. They weren't comfortable to tell their colleagues or their family that they were struggling. But what COVID did was it sent us home and out came the advocates and out came the the talk about mental health. If you're struggling, if you're home, let's have a chat about it. And what it did was normalize mental health by, you know, tenfold. And so I like to think that there's, you know, we'll look back on the stats and I might be absolutely wrong in three years time when ABS dropped that suicide rates have been the highest they've ever been, but I'm yet to see it. And I'm, I'm having great faith that what we did do was highlight that the power of conversation can save a life. People were feeling way more comfortable to talk about what it was that they were struggling with. And therefore our society has opened our arms a lot more to the fact that we are going to struggle. We are going to go through tough times and therefore let's be there a little bit more for each other. Yeah. So in a morbid way, COVID was one of your best ambassadors. Well, a little bit, yeah. Like, yeah, without sounding like, oh, COVID rolled up and then made Stay Chatty Sexy and and Mental Health Sexy and we all started to talk about it. Yeah, that's not what I'm saying. But at the end of the day, we're working hard to raise awareness that, hey, mental health affects all of us at any stage. And this has shone a light on that. And there's so many organizations these days reaching out, hey, can we have a presentation? And, you know, and their sentence will be COVID taught us, la da 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 You know, like they're, they're, COVID taught us so much and uh, mental health was certainly one of them. And and yeah, it's great if, if we get the opportunity to walk through the door and have some further conversations about it. Absolutely. Um, I imagine it's very hard to find data on why people do it. Is there literature that you've read or even strong hunches of what leads people down this sort of path, like significant life changes or isolation, lack of social groups, meaning, those sorts of things? hundred uh, percent. And, and I'll start off answering this question by that every suicide is different and every every person that experiences a mental health issue, whether that's severe, minimal, is is different. And so I always like to, to add as well that, you know, I'm, I'm not a professional. I come from someone that's got a lived experience. I've done lots of training, but I know that my story is vastly different. It's similar to a lot, but it's also vastly different to a lot of other individuals and people that have been through suicide or mental health in their life. 
every suicide is traumatic. Every suicide impacts people near, far, differently, small. Uh, I read a stat uh, years ago that they used to say that um, suicide affected uh, on average about 15 people. And I remember jumping up and down thinking that is absolutely rubbish. Like how how can you have that statistic at 15? I think now it's come out at 85. And even that I think is less. You know, you look at most funerals or, you know, most times someone passes away, there's way more people than that. Again, I'm generalizing, but there's so many people, if someone's an outgoing person or has connections, then so many people are affected by it. But look, there are so many reasons and and ways. We're all different. As I said, every suicide is different as to how they can be impacted. I used to ramble on about, look out for the signs of someone being sad, down, flat, missing training, skipping work. But at the end of the day, it can be someone that shows joy, giving things away, finding happiness in the strangest of things. You know, change is the thing that we need to look for. Change in whether it's good, bad, negative, positive, changing someone is an opportunity to reach out and say, hey, what's going on? Trusting your gut. If you've got that thing happening inside where you feel someone's a little bit off or they're a little bit different, change, not necessarily positive or negative is something that we should absolutely look out for. But to answer your question, look, I I think it all comes back to connection. I think that yeah, absolutely. The employment can play a role. Happiness with your job, happiness with your relationship, unhappiness with people have kids and they're expected it's to be the most joyous time ever. I know people that had kids and they had the happiest marriage ever and then they're no longer together. You know, like things change and things happen. But my biggest thing out of that, I think, is to always remain as connected as possible. And that's easier said than done as well. You know, we we have good days and we feel like connecting. You know, I use the example that we, we throw our doona back, the alarm goes off sometimes and we throw our doona back and we spring out of bed and we've got something exciting to do. But there's also a lot of days where the alarm goes off and you throw the doona back and go, it's cold. I don't feel like giving life 100% today. Um, And on those days, we will order our coffee and float to the back of the cafe and not chat to the barista because we're we're having a, a crappy day. We'll cancel a meeting, we'll hide away in our office, or we'll postpone a podcast just because we don't feel like doing it. But I urge people every day to, you know, that's where you've got to fight harder to get out of the hole. That's where you've got to work through and challenge yourself to go, you know what? I don't feel like talking to this person right now, but I'm going to because it's going to distract how I'm feeling. I'm going to engage in conversation. Physical connection is something that we as human beings urge for, we long for every single day. And what it might do is, in fact, lead you down a garden path to talk about what made you wake up feeling ordinary in the first place. So I think it's it's easier said than done, absolutely. But for me, whatever you talk about, whether it's challenging through an injury, through a, a sadness, through a loss, through a death, how do we get through it? Well, there's various ways and many ways we get through that. But I think remaining connected and ensuring that you're finding ways to have people around you to, to trust and, and to have that conversation with is one of the most important things that we can do. Look, I I know that I'm not perfect at it and I know that I walk around at times on my phone and I'm sending a text or shooting an email, but I really do pride myself on on having my head up. And I say this a lot that – I will always try if someone walks past me to smile, to um, to acknowledge them. And that's for me. I, I That brings me a sense of connection when I walk past and acknowledge someone and they give it back. But I also don't want people to walk past me thinking that they've had, they might be having the worst day of their life and thinking that no one cares. And for me to just simply walk past and acknowledge their existence might be that one little thing that they needed to just make them realize that, you know what, my life is worth living. You know, I'm having a bad day right now but this is a bad moment. It's not a bad life. And so, yeah, that that acknowledgement or that urge or that desire or that will to find connection, really, really important. But again, easier said than done because we have bad days, but it's really important to just try and find a little bit of inner strength to get out and, and, and find some connection. Yeah, fantastic. And connected with that, so that's how we can help ourselves. Uh, are there any quick tips on how we can help other people as well? Yeah, just being there, I think. And it goes back to that gut, you know, trusting your gut. We notice people in our life that are off their off their game, and um, and it's it's a daunting thing to think if I'd seen you a lot lately and you're off you're off your game, and I clearly feel that within myself that you're not right. That's a pretty daunting experience for me to walk up to you if I may know you well or I may not to say, mate, hey, I've noticed you're struggling. Is everything all right? Because at the end of the day, you can turn around and hopefully pour all your troubles onto me and you offload everything that's going on. That can be a burden for some people to take that on. But it's it's a really important thing that we ask the question because, you know, I've I've met people and and I have an example with my little brother where I 
the night before saw him. And when I look back now, when I said goodnight to him, he absolutely wasn't okay. And I'll never, ever forget his face. And I'll never, ever forget the way he, he mumbled goodnight to me. And, and there's nothing I can ever do about that to ever bring him back. But I know the power now of, of checking in and asking. And so I always say to someone, if you, if you see someone who's off their game, ask them, shut your mouth, open your ears, just simply listen, take it all in, understand it's a really powerful, poignant moment in life that they trust you to share with you. And then go away, protect them, check in with them, but encourage them to go and get that professional help and and to seek out what the next step is. So look, it's a daunting task. It's not for everyone, but yeah, as I said, you don't want to live like I do wishing that I'd asked the question. Um, And so that's why I ask it. And there's a lot more steps around that. That's a very short way of answering your question, but um, trust your gut, go and ask, shut your mouth, and then push them in the professional direction that they may need. Yeah, perfect. That sounds really good. Short way to sum it up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I like it. So, Mitch, um, one thing it seems could be a cultural stereotype, not sure, but it seems that men typically find it harder to share how they're going. Um, so do you have advice uh, for men who want to support each other? And then as well, do you have any interesting stats for how to support women as well, if there is uh, a difference? Yeah, it's a, I think it's a generational thing. I was fortunate enough to be part of the Australian of the Year Awards in 20, I can't even remember, 2017. And we did a bit of a roadshow. And um, I remember the roadshow was based on Australian, it was around Australian values. And I never forget sort of looking up and, and studying and becoming really familiar with the values to be an Australian. And a lot of them were around being stoic and strong and it kind of unearthed that they're values that we kind of, we want, but we also in a way want to let go of because it was bringing, you know, a lot of men undone. You know, you, you think back to our our dads and our pops, you know, it was a no-brainer that majority of them were, you know, the, the strong money earner, the strong one in the house. If someone knocked on the door to break in, it was them that would barge them down and, and, by no means at all would they ever want to sit and be vulnerable and talk about their feelings. So I do feel that that's certainly a challenge for us. You know, like we go into organizations that are male dominated and, and this is an interesting thing. I've sat, I've spoken to, um, male dominated workforces where there's blokes that are, you know, 60, 70, 80, and then there's blokes that are, you know, young apprentices up to 30, 40. And it's, absolutely unbelievable that the young guys will be locked on me and they'll be watching. But the older blokes, you know, you kind of get that feel that they just think, what's this? You know, I just want to get out of there. They're they're hard to crack and it's a a difficult age bracket. Um, I did a prayers one day and a bloke sat in front of me on a job site and he read the paper the whole time. He turned the paper. He didn't look at me once, but when he finished, I deliberately watched him and he got up and as he was walking out of the room, he took more flyers than anyone else there. We had five or six flies. He took every single one, multiple of them, and walked out with them. And to me, it was a sign of he was engaging, he was listening, but he didn't want to show that he was listening because of that fear, you know, that judgment. So I think all we can do is um, continue to break it down, you know, and, and I love when I see these young guys young tradies getting around, they've got a stage chatty sticker or a lifeline sticker on their car. And you think, how cool is that? That that just wouldn't have happened years ago. We never, ever would have had anything at all mental health related in a male dominated workforce. So all we can do is continue to chip away. And, and I like to think that that next generation of young boys coming through will be way more open to talk about it. Mm. Um, in terms of women though, you asked about the statistics around that. Um, I think uh, on average, the last time I checked was nine, um, there's nine suicide deaths a day in Australia. On average, eight of those are male, which is pretty damning. And, and the statistics are really grim when you look at it that way. And I've said it a few times today, hence why I don't like to look at them because they're not amazing. But I think also statistically women uh, attempt on their to take their life more than men, but men use more forceful means in which they take their own life. So that's pretty damning as well, you know, but um, look, this is going to be generalization and stereotypical and people will be upset as well, but women are more in my term and in my own life, more open to be more vulnerable with each other and have conversations where, again, we talk about historically blokes aren't or males aren't uh, inclined to sit around and be vulnerable and talk about their feelings. So look, we can learn certainly a lot from the the women in our lives. We know that if you've got a, a woman in your life that is really open to talking about their problems and, and how they're going, you know, some might get upset about that, that that's a bit much, but you know, grab hold of that and, and learn and let it rub off on you that that's the way we need to be now for sure. Be strong, be stoic, be a leader. They're important and really strong values that we need to hold on to. but you've got to find that balance as well. It's okay to let your guard down and understand that, you know, I'm right in the middle of a really tough time right now. I can't be that person right now. I need a break from it. I'll get back there. But right now I just need to surround myself with some love, some care 
share some vulnerability and some and some people to remind me that it's okay to go through a really really tough time. Mm. So for guys, it's it's about kind of uh, allowing those spaces to, to happen and those conversations to happen. Yeah, exactly. And and how do we do that? It, it's, you know, um, I love when you head off to male-dominated workforces to talk about mental health or they celebrate Are You Okay Day. I know deep down they think, what's this crap and I don't really want to get around it, but that's how we'll make a difference. You know, when I reel off that stat about, you know, nine suicide deaths a day, over 3,000 people in 2017 took their own life, people will always come up and say, that's a pandemic, you know, COVID-19 is a pandemic, but those numbers are a pandemic. What the hell do we do about it? And my answer is, well, we do what we're doing now. And that is talking about mental health. That is planting the seed. What people do next is completely up to them. But I like to think that us putting this podcast out there, me doing a prez tomorrow at a workplace, that's planting a seed. That's making people stand up and go, this stuff is real. This stuff matters. This could happen to me. Mm. What I do now is on me and I'm going to make a difference and I'm going to make sure that my life and the lives of those around me are far more open to having conversations about mental health. Awesome. So uh, we'll move to the the final part of the the conversation here, Mitch. Um, we like to invite people from all walks of life on the show, and uh, we like to get a sense of how people see the world and how it shapes their passions and their vocations and those sorts of things, their hobbies. You personally don't come from any sort of Christian background or go to church or anything like that, but you do have a number of Christian connections, it seems. Could you tell us a bit about them and your personal journey in general, how you see the world? Yeah, absolutely. So I um it's interesting for me. I went to um Corpus Christi, which is a, a Catholic school and and then went on to St Virgil's College, which is private boys all boys school and certainly had religion and all those sorts of things and it's it's interesting, you know, celebrated Easter and and all those types of things and um I'm forgetting all the terminology of the things that I used to do at at my school, but um I certainly that was my faith and that's just because of the school I went to. But I wouldn't say that outside of school, myself and my family were heading off to Sunday mass. And But I suppose when I, I reflect and, and um, it probably hasn't been until I w- was older and, and realized what faith was and how passionate people get about it and how important it is into so many people's lives. I suppose the realization around that came for me where, you know, I was someone that proudly said I never shunned away from the fact that I went to a, a Catholic school and that I I engaged in all those types of things throughout my life and church through school and but uh, my wife when I met her is um Muslim and um you know that was a real opener for me to realize how they live their life to be honest, I'm going to sound really stupid, but there are other religions. I know that sounds really um, ignorant, but at the end of the day, that was me. I just hadn't really ever taken the time to focus on that. And it's been incredible for me to engage and to learn about her life and and the way that they go about and the the things that they do differently. Mm. And I've I've certainly embraced that. I've I've spent time in Syria some years ago for a trip over there for a few weeks and, and embraced their culture. And whilst I haven't fully immersed myself into the world of a Muslim or the world of of people here through the Catholic Church. What I have done, I think my greatest learning has been that um, I respect it a lot more now. Um, and I think that I will certainly pass that on to anyone, that you don't have to be fully on board, whatever faith or whatever religion or whatever it is that you're about. But I've learned that there's amazing people in whatever re- religion they do. They have it for their own reasons. They do it for their different reasons. But it's important that we respect that. And I think that, you know, that's probably one of the big issues in the world at the moment. There's different religions and probably causing a lot of issues around the world as well that we don't understand that it's okay to be different. People do it differently and and let's respect that along the way. I have done a lot of work with... um. C3 Church and, and Sean White, who's a head pastor up there. And I always say to Sean that every time he rings me to go up and do a, a Q&A or be part of a an event up at the, the church there, um, I absolutely bloody love it. I, I was part of a Q&A there and the vibe and the, the love and the passion that I've felt since leaving those events at the church, um, absolutely mind-blowing. The way that people made me feel warm and loved and, and welcomed was something that um, I hadn't really felt at any other event. And it's just been um, a great journey to, as I said, to learn a little bit about different religions, but to to ultimately come out of it knowing that it's important to respect them along the way. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. And um, in line with your work, do you ever find that maybe religion or like maybe Christianity, you can, you can be as candid as you want here, have been an impediment to like 
getting mental health messages out there? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, um, suicide, you know, and particularly I learned a lot about that in the US. It's still in a lot of other countries. You say the word and you can get arrested. You know, people take their life. There's a lot of shame around mental health and suicide. I can't particularly um, remember the countries of the people that I, I shared time with while I was away, but there were countries there that, you know, if someone took their own life, um, the whole family would pack up and move. You know, they would move out of the town. Um, it would it, They wouldn't have a funeral. It would be uh, hit by a car, died of cancer. So that's still what happens around the world. I mean, even to a certain extent, you know, in the my wife with Muslim, we've had conversations about it that, you know, they don't openly talk about suicide and it's deemed that it's not something that you, you're not necessarily an incredibly strong person if you're struggling with mental health challenges. And I know that's not just in, in, in her world and their religion, but in lots of other religions that, you know, it's not an open conversation that you talk about. But I think I've certainly seen trickles in in different communities and, and spaces like that. It only takes one person to, you know, drive that within a community, within a, a church community or a religion to, you know, name it up and to say, hey, this is something that is happening, has happened. And they're the types of small inroads that you can make to then make some serious change. So look, I've definitely seen it. I, I know that it happens. And I've certainly know that Stay Chatty hasn't been in some communities around Tasmania because of that. But um, look, all we can do is put ourselves out there, keep naming it up. And mental health affects anyone, no matter what religion you are, your race, uh, your sexuality, um, everyone has mental health. And I suppose the more that we can get that in the door and make people understand and realize that, the more we can, you know, support people and make them realize that they can have a conversation about it. And um, at a personal level, in terms of the things that uh, you believe about the world, are there, are there any things that you struggle with when it comes to kind of religious ideas, uh, yeah, Christian or Muslim, anything that you just can't relate to or believe for yourself? Yeah. Um, that's a really good question. Um, not really. I, I really do believe in, and this probably stems from a religion perspective, but even just across the board, I believe that anyone can be who they want to be, can believe in whatever they want to believe in and stand up for that and, and advocate for it. But my worry these days, and I, and I shared this at a school the other day at a Q&A, the, um, the theme was courage. And I think that we all should work to being as courageous as we can and celebrating courage. And it's a really important thing that we all can try and adapt as part of our lives. But whilst I believe that people are standing up for themselves, believing in who they want to be, whether that religious race, you know, sexuality, all those types of things. But my worry is that we're doing it disrespectfully. And that, that is a, I think that is a really big challenge in, in the world. I think that wherever you look around that, you know, we've allowed people to stand up and, and talk about what they believe in, but people aren't absorbing or understanding or respecting the opinions of other people around them. And, and I know that social media has done this where, you know, gone are the days where we're, you know, I always reflect when I was 10, 12, I rode a bike, I didn't have a phone, you know, I'd have cuts all over my legs from where I'd fallen off the bike and it was in and have a meal and go to bed. You know, it's very different now. Kids are on their phones and I, I feel like that generation might be a, a little bit you know, time will tell, and I might get in trouble for saying this, but a little bit softer, you know, we're raising them to be a little bit more precious and we're wrapping a little bit of bubble wrap around them. And therefore, I think that that's not necessarily making them the most resilient people that they can be. They're growing up, maybe thinking that they can do and say and be whoever they want, but not appreciate that it's okay to have people differ your opinion and, and, and respect. So yeah, look, I, I don't like when I turn on the news and, and see a young person, I love seeing them embrace who they are and what they want to be and standing up for something they believe in. But when they disrespect people along the way, particularly adults, I'm, I'm a huge advocate for respecting your elders. I think that's a, a sort of past, it's not past everyone, but I remember when I was young, it was, if you were in a room of adults, you show the utmost respect to them, no matter who they are. And I think that might be sort of going out the window a little bit because people feel that they can, you know, stand and say what they want without having to respect what what people believe around them. So yeah, I feel like if you're a young person out there, believe in yourself, but appreciate and respect your elders, but in particular your peers and people around you that might have a different opinion. Mm. Yeah. And allow those differences to respectfully exist. Yeah. Well, that's exactly right. And you know, everyone finds happiness and joy in so many different things. You know, who are we as a human being that was came into this earth exactly the same way as anyone else to stand up and take that away from someone or make them feel that they can't be the best version of themselves. So yeah, it's always really important. I think if you go back, we all came into this world exactly the same. We might've had different upbringings and different people around us, but at the end of the day, we all started with an equal opportunity. It should be that way for the rest of our lives. Yeah, sure. 
All right. And uh, to wrap up, uh, could you share maybe three resources that would uh, help someone having a tough time? Yeah, no doubt. Um, I think I always think about, I know a lot of services and resources and if you're struggling, heading off, having a conversation with someone is a number one, you know, there's your GP, get a mental health plan, go and see a professional service. You know, we hear about those a lot. Um, they're not always also easy to do. We know that in Tasmania, around the country, we're certainly under-resourced in terms of when it comes to heading off to go and see a psychiatrist, psychologist, even a GP. It's not easy. Cost of living is an issue now. We, not everyone has $80 to roll in and see a GP. So, um, and thinking about the the resources, Mindframe website, Mindframe frame is a really great way for people to jump on and learn about language around mental health. Mm. You know, we spoke earlier about having the conversation with someone. Now, the way we respond to someone who is going through a tough time is really, really pivotal. I've done a lot of mental health training and our response, whether that's physically, verbally, the way we hold ourselves is really pivotal in a time of need for someone. So get out there and find yourself some training, but Mindframe is a really great resource and I I can send you the link to pop up. Um, Beyond Blue, you know, it's a no-brainer. We've heard about it a Mm. lot, but Beyond Blue, you can literally type in uh, so many different instances of, you know, my brother's friend's uh, music teacher is going through a tough time. Like that's an example, but you can dive really deep in there to find many, many examples of someone that's going through a tough time or a friend that's going through hardship needs some support. So that's just a, a profound resource and they're a leader for a reason that you can jump on there, dig deep and find some support for yourself. But my, my third sort of um, resource is have a think about in your own world I already joked earlier about how I was a rat bag at school and barely had my nose in the books and didn't study and didn't go off to uni or anything. But one thing I did learn from school was I remember my teacher once said, in your life, you should find, you know, you've got five fingers. Every finger should represent someone in your world that you can turn to if you're struggling. Mm. And I just think that in today's society and in this world that we live in right now, that is no more important than than right now. Um, so that's a, and that's a resource, you know, like have a think about it. If you're listening today, like, who are your five in different areas? Don't name all your five up at work because if you, you know, if there's a public holiday, then all of a sudden you've got no one. But you know, your your work, your your sport, your church, your community. Have a think about who your five are so that you can, you know, write them down, put them in your phone. Um, because at the end of the day, in a time of need, that's who we want, and they're the people that we want to turn to, that we trust to have a conversation. So it's not a resource that you can put a link to. Um, the first two you can, but look, I got my five and I know they're there for me. Um, if one's not, the other will be. So yeah, find your five as well as Mindframe and Beyond Blue, a couple of amazing resources in the, in terms of the wellbeing and mental health space. Fantastic. Yeah, I love it. That's a very helpful way to think about it. Thanks so much for joining us, Mitch. You're an inspiration to, to many and myself and uh, yeah, really glad that you came in today to share your story. Pleasure. Thank you so much. And uh, for anyone listening, you know, um, I always say this at any time you get the opportunity to engage with anything mental health, um, you know, don't just listen, tune out without taking action, you know, make it the next five minutes when you switch off, check in on how you're traveling, you know, do you need a service, a friend to have a chat with, but also put your radar out to the next, you know, few people that you bump into and see how they're going. You know, they may be well be someone that's in a little bit of a hole and and you reaching out for a coffee, a chat or a, a listening ear could well be the absolute thing that keeps them alive on this earth. So take action and and learn as much as you can. Great thoughts to close with. Thanks again, Mitch. Thanks, mate. Cheers. I suspect everyone listening has known of at least one person who's taken their own life. And it sucks. It really does. For some, it could be a distant relative or former colleague or classmate. But for others, it might have been one of your closest friends or immediate family. And that's gutting. The signs aren't always particularly clear and often people suffer in silence, hoping for relief or a conversation that never comes. I love what Mitch is doing and for others who are seeking to turn a traumatic personal experience into a cultural turning point and opportunity for deeper understanding. To recognise that there are things that we can do on an individual level to help someone in need. And that by bringing these conversations into the light, there can be all kinds of positive ripple effects that can then flow out into wider society and who we want to be as a collective. When I was an undergraduate, we studied the French sociologist Emile Durkheim and his landmark book, Les Suicide, first published in 1897. And he categorizes four forms of suicide, anomic, fatalistic, egoistic, and altruistic forms of suicide. And they're all super helpful categories, which I don't have time to go into detail about now. 
but he helpfully lays out the social aspects and forces that contribute to people taking their own lives. Sometimes it's that sense of isolation, loneliness, when people never fully integrate into healthy communities and networks. Sometimes it's due to personal breakdown or a loss of social equilibrium, where your circumstances change dramatically almost overnight. Sometimes it's a result of an oppressive and inescapable system or government, especially if you're on the receiving end of unjust treatment with little power or ability to change them. Think of offshore detention centres for asylum seekers, or historically the way that minority groups have been treated. Interestingly, he contrasts Protestantism with Catholicism, and to a lesser extent Judaism as well, to see if there's much of a difference. And there is, or at least there was in 1897, where Protestantism pushed individualism much further than Catholicism, and as a consequence saw higher rates of suicide. I think that's only increased in Western countries since, as secularization has increased, so has individualism. Throw in capitalism, consumerism, addictive technologies, and the endless search for self-discovery. The burden of choice can be hard, and we've seen sweeping changes in family dynamics and social norms which have upended what it means to be in community together, which I suspect has increased the sense of alienation and disillusionment that many people feel. It's interesting thinking about suicide as a Christian. The Bible doesn't say heaps about it, nor does it explicitly forbid it in a clear and unambiguous way. But the examples it gives are often tragic figures, people that have fallen from a place of prominence and blessing. There's King Saul, who falls on his sword, a phrase that you still hear in popular usage today after he loses his power. Or there's Judas Iscariot, of course, part of Jesus' inner circle, who betrays him for 30 pieces of silver and later is found hanging from a tree. A provocative contrast with Jesus' grisly ending. Or St. Augustine, he talks about suicide as laying violent hands on oneself, on suicide, the murder of the self. And typically Christians have resisted suicide as a viable option. There's the belief that life is a gift from God and that things can always turn. Life can always get better. The Christian story is one that affirms our dignity in, despite, and through our suffering. And God himself models this through Christ's suffering-soaked life. What this means is that the hard times are not in vain and that we can come out of them full of people, refined by our experiences and able to bless others later. This can be incredibly difficult to understand and comprehend when we're in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death. But things can get better. There is always hope, and your suffering never needs to be alone. When the God of the universe hears your prayers and knows your anguish, we'll always have something to offer with our lives, even if we don't feel connected or that our life has value. It does, and especially to God. Now, don't get me wrong. Christians also struggle with mental health, and some make the painful choice to end their own lives. But it's in significantly less numbers than the general population. There was a fascinating article written recently by Professor David Rosmarin at the Harvard Medical School, which I'll link in the show notes. And they found that those who attended religious services weekly were five times less likely to die from suicide compared with those who did not attend at all. And in a similar study, among some 100,000 men and women, Weekly service attendance predicted 68% lower risks of deaths of despair, so suicide, drugs, and alcohol, among females, and 33% lower risk among males. And these aren't isolated findings either. A 2016 systematic review of the literature located 89 studies on religion and suicide published in the preceding years, and the authors concluded unequivocally that religious affiliation protects against suicide attempts with large effect sizes, even after controlling for social support and access to mental health care. Rosmarin contends that the spiritual component of well-being is vastly underappreciated in mental health discussions, and that these conversations should be part of any treatment plan, even if you're not religious. Why? Because hopelessness is a significant risk factor, and spirituality, and I think especially Christianity, can fill the chasm that sucks life of its colour and enjoyment, and help us appreciate the gift that life and relationships and love gives us. Our show's working tagline is Submerge in Wonder, Surface with Hope. And by bringing spiritual aspects to bear on important cultural issues, we think that we can bring a genuine sense of hope to all conversations and contexts, no matter who you are, where you're from, and what your story is. One of the things that I love about Mitch is that he embodies that spirit in everything that he does. It's clear at an organisational level, and with all the things that Stay Chatty are doing, 
But for anyone that's met him, he's a guy that cares and makes you feel special and feel heard and feel valued. So I'm really thankful for everything that he shared. Real privilege to have him on and hope you can come away with something that will help you and your circle of influence. Let me wrap up with one last quote from David Rosmarin. He finishes his essay saying, Finally, the combined mental health sciences could take a page out of religion's playbook when it comes to dealing with suicidal patients. Yes, we should continue to use evidence-based approaches to reducing distress and symptoms, but we should also build up our patients' resources through the avenues of hope, optimism, and meaning-making. When this approach is taken, mental disorders often can become catalysts for thriving and we can save lives. I hope that you can come away from today's episode committed to finding hope, embracing optimism, and living a life of meaning. Not only will they help us, but we might be able to help someone in need too. Thanks for listening to Deeper Questions. If you're enjoying these conversations, we'd love to hear from you. Feel free to email myself or Amy. Don't forget to check out the show notes for additional resources as well. We'd also love for you to help us reach new listeners. Maybe shoot your favorite episodes to friends or family. And you can always find more at thirdspace.org.au. If anything from today's episode has impacted you, you can go to beyondblue.org or Lifeline 131114.